So a quick background. Um, chapter 5, big insight. Chapter 4 is before chapter 5. <laughs> Bad joke, guys, but yeah. <laughs> so at the end of chapter 3, what we see is we see John the Baptist. Um, he comes into the scene, and Jesus comes into the scene. He baptizes him. We see the Spirit of God descending on Jesus. It remains on him. After this, the next thing that we see is that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness or into the desert for how many days? Forty days, right? And forty nights. Interesting. The Spirit led him into the desert. And he was tempted by whom? By, by Satan, right? Now, when we look at the contrast to that, we see Moses on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. When he goes up for 40 days and 40 nights, who, who did he meet with? He met with God. Isn't that interesting? Here's Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, and he's tempted by Satan. Here's Moses, 40 days and 40 nights. He's before the Lord, the presence of the Lord. He comes down with that mo glow that we talk about, right? He's glowing. He comes down and gives the law. When John, it says that uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So just wanted to point that out. Um, next thing we see is after these temptations, we see that John is thrown in prison. And after John's thrown in prison, Jesus goes to this region in Capernaum. He has been in Nazareth, and now he makes Capernaum his home. This is his launching pad now. Now, Capernaum is in the northern western section of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so if in the back of your Bibles, I'm sure you have your maps, and you, you guys know your Bibles. Um, they would be in the northern western corner. Now, this whole region is known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's interesting that Jesus is the first place he goes as he enters the ministry, per se. He goes to a place that the Bible says, a people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Where does Jesus go, guys? He goes to the dark places. He goes to those that are destitute. He goes to those that have no hope, and he infuses hope. That's where he goes. And the first thing he says is repent. Now, repent. That's a word that oftentimes we don't like to hear because it just rubs us the wrong way, right? Repent. Why it gives the connotation that we're doing something wrong? You know why? Because we are. So pretty simple, repent. But repent is such an awesome word. Because it means that you can just turn from the direction you can go and you're going and just turn to Jesus. Now, if you've been going on the wrong direction, Jesus calls you to repent. He says, make that U-turn. You're one turn away from forgiveness. One turn away. That's all it is. You give up your sins. It's a great deal. You bring Jesus your junk, your sins, all the mess that you made of your life, and you say, here, and you ask him to forgive you of your sins. And Jesus is just waiting for you. He forgives you. He gives you a new life, a new start. So repent. He preaches repentance. Then he calls four guys that we see on here. Some fishermen, right? Uh, we see Peter. We see his brother Andrew, James, and John. He calls them to follow him. Now, this is not the first time that they met Jesus. They've met him. But now there's the call to discipleship. There's a call to follow him. You guys may be familiar with the book that's called Not a Fan. Great book. I recommend it. You know, it's one thing about knowing Jesus and saying, yeah, he's great and so forth. It's a different thing 
when he calls you to follow him. And that's what he's done for us. Where were you when Jesus called you? What were you doing? Were you busy about your business as they were? Their life was fishing, going to the market, back and forth. That's what they were doing. Now, I know where I was at when Jesus called me. I was in the middle of the desert, fighting with the radio, hearing the word of God being preached. And after months of going through that same thing, long story, I said, Lord, I give up. I said, I don't understand all those things that this man is saying, but I do understand that I'm not for you and I want to be for you. Here's my life. If you're the God that this man says you are, do something with it. And Jesus is faithful. He does something with it. Now, all of us, I pray all of us, if not most of us, have had that encounter with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay, excitement, guys. Amen. We're saved. We're going to heaven. should have a smile on our face. We're heaven-bound. Right? So, finally, our text. So we enter into our text here. Here's Jesus in this region, and all of a sudden, all these masses come to him from all over the place. They hear this Galilean man, this, this rabbi that he's teaching in a way that no one has ever heard before. He's doing things that people have not seen. He's healing the blind. He's, he's, he's infusing life. And people from all around are coming who hear this incredible words leaving his mouth. So here's this crowd. So it says here, as we enter our text, verse 1, it says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, interesting thing here. Here he is. He sees the multitude. I want you to catch the picture because it's so important. That's how we understand the text, right? We put context to the text. He goes up onto the side of this mountain, and he sits down. Well, why is that important? Well, see, the rabbis would sit down, and the people would stand. So when they would go and sit down, they knew it was time for a teaching. They knew, okay, now he's, he's getting ready to teach. That's where we get certain um, things like chairman now, or, or somebody in their university that says they hold a chair here. Um, so he sits down, and the disciples, what do they do? It says that when he was seated, his disciples came to him. What attitude did they have when they came to Jesus? Well, the word disciple gives us an insight, right? They want to learn from him. They want to just hang on his every word. They were ready to hear what he said. Now, when you come to church, when I come to church, what type of attitude do we have? Do we come with a pharisaical attitude, maybe? I've heard that already. I already know that. Ah, oh, just another sermon. What time is this going to end? <laughs> Amen. So what type of attitude do we come? You know, do we come with an attitude of, Lord, I want to know what you have for me. What are you saying to me today? Lord, I, I need to hear you. I need to, you to infuse those incredible words in my life. I need you to infuse hope in my life. It doesn't matter if we're in the same section of Scripture where we were maybe in our devil time. Maybe we heard it multiple times. But now God is speaking to you as you, as you sit here with expectation and hear the words of Jesus. 
The Sermon of the Mount, three chapters. If you have a red-letter Bible, it's all red. When you look at it, you're like, wow. It said that this is the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, the only other section in the Bible that we see that there's uh, the same or a little bit more red writing is in John 14, 15, and 16, 17. This is holy ground. This is Jesus speaking. This is the king of kings. This is truly, we said that the rabbis would sit and they're in a position of authority. Well, this is God sitting from his throne room giving us his words. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, I think a more appropriate name for the sermon is a mountain of a sermon, wouldn't you say? It is a mountain of a sermon. It is incredible. And the only thing we're going to go through right now is the Beatitudes. And I don't know if we're going to go through all of them. But it's incredible. And the way that it's broken up is the first section. It, he is describing this transaction that takes place in the life of a believer, a disciple. There's a change in us. And it builds on the other one. It goes from poor to mourn to meek to hunger, merciful, pure, peacemaker, persecuted. Uh, that is the result. But what we see is we see the kingdom of heaven, the very first section. And then at the very last section, blessed, we see the kingdom of heaven. And everything in between is sandwiched in between. So think about that. So this is for the believer. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not received him as your Lord and Savior, if you have not placed your trust in him, and uh, I, I can say many different ways of, of saying are you saved, right? But bottom line is, if you're here and don't know him, this may sound pretty, just pretty bad. It goes against your grain. It goes against everything that we learn in the world. It goes against the flesh. But the Bible says that the natural man can't receive those things that are spiritual. So if you're here and, and, and it rubs you the wrong way and you, you're like, no, this is not, and so forth, hey, no worries. If you don't know the Lord, you're going to have an opportunity to know him. See, he always gives us an opportunity to either receive him or reject him. Pretty simple. The Lord doesn't play around. You're either for him or against him. Now, I have never met a man that says, man, I feel terrible that I gave my life to the Lord. It was the worst decision that I made. I don't know what I was thinking. Quite the opposite. I said, man, why didn't I do that before? You know, when I gave my life to the Lord, and I promise you, we'll get into our text. But when I gave my life to the Lord, and remember hearing the gospel preached, heard it for the first time. Now, now I had heard it. I'm sure I've heard it. I don't remember it, but I'm sure I've heard it. But God gave me the ears to hear. And I gave my life to the Lord. And I stopped at the gas station later that day, and some there was this couple here, and, and this lady said, God bless you. I'll tell you, it was like I had never heard those words before. It, it, the only way that it can be described is as tunnel vision. I don't know if you guys have been involved in an accident or some life-threatening event where everything just slows down, and it's like, whoa. Well, that's exactly what happened for my ears. It was like, God bless you. It's like I never heard it before. And the Bible says that he makes the deaf to hear and the blind to see. Isn't that awesome? We have a good God. We have a gracious God. So, verse 2. <laughs> then he opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now the word blessed here is oh how happy. Now the title, the Beatitudes, is, is basically that, is blessings, is the Latin word term for blessings. But the definition of this word blessing is oh how happy. Now it's not the temporary emotional happiness that we get um, as an example. I'm going to throw my wife out there. Okay, she put me on a diet. So men, you guys, you guys know when this happens. She put me on a diet, no sugar. And um, it was her birthday, so I, I saw it fit to go buy her a cake with sugar in it. Right? Wouldn't you do that? I want to bless my wife. So we agreed to have just a small portion of that cake, right? Just, just a sliver. So we sing happy birthday. We do all these things. And we have just a small sliver. And she walks away. And, and I confess to you guys that I grabbed that fork. And I was <laughs> stuffing my face. I covered it up and put it in the refrigerator. Now, let me tell you, I was, oh, I was so happy at that point. Right? So happy. But it was fading. You know, it was, as soon as I put it in the refrigerator, oh, happiness left. Well, I submit to you, it's not the happiness that he's speaking of. It's not the happiness that man looks for. You know, it, it, sometimes we say, I would be happy if only I had that car. I would be happy if only I had that house. I'd be happy if only I would marry that woman. I would be happy if. And then you get that job. A few years later, it's like, man, this is miserable. What, what am I doing? I'll be happy if I only had that other job. Or you get your car, and after a few weeks, you're like, oh, man, i got to make that payment. It's no longer happiness. The happiness that the world shows us is temporary. It's momentary. But the happiness that it speaks of here transcends this life. I could say it would probably be better said. Or I, another way of saying is, oh, how eternally happy are the poor in spirit. Now, that being said, it's still, right, it goes contrary how are you going to be happy if you're poor? It's like, how does that happen? That's, that's contrary to one another. But, but look at what the text says. It doesn't say, blessed are the poor, period. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean? It means a, a spiritual bankruptcy. Poor here, it talks about a beggar state, just a, a, a place of just total dependence. It's being in a place that you recognize your desire for God and the need for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a place, it's a good place. And what happens when you're in that place? Well, you turn to God. You turn to God. So, oh, how happy, poor in spirit. I'll tell you what it's not. What, what is the opposite of poor in spirit? Sometimes it helps us, right, to get a fuller, deeper meaning. What is the opposite of a poor in spirit? Well, I'm sorry? <laughs> so... So certainly we don't get obtain happiness in yeah we certainly we can't obtain happiness in, in monies or in treasures but but the opposite of being poor in spirit would be proud 
right? Proud. I'm a self-made man. I made this happen. I, 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 I. And we get that I problem. It's I, I, I. Now, when we're in that state that we're just dependent on God, such an awesome place because in John 15, 5, it says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And without me, you can do everything. Is that what it says? Without me, you can do nothing, right? It's that state of total dependence. Now, in Isaiah, we read, Isaiah 66, 2, we read, For all those things my hand has made, this is God speaking, guys, listen, and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one, Will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word? God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We can, we can discuss it afterwards. If you want. We can, I'd be happy to talk. Absolutely, absolutely. So, proud. So, it begs the question. Why does God hate pride? Why does he hate pride? Well, I'll tell you why he hates pride. Because that's the downfall of man. That was the downfall of Satan. That's what keeps us, keeps man out of the kingdom of heaven. He hates pride. Turn with me. I'm going to have you turn with me if you have your Bibles or your phone. Pretend you're switching the pages over to Isaiah 14, 12. Isaiah 14, 12. I want to give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 14, 12 reads, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nation, for you have said in your hearts, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation. On the farthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down a shield to the lowest depths of the pit. I, 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 I. In Genesis 3, 4, we see the serpent or Satan, that serpent of old, come to Eve and poses that question, what Satan always does, right? That attack. Did God really say that? So did God really say you can't have of this fruit? And she says, no, the Lord said you shall not touch it or eat of it and so forth. And then verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Pride. Pride, the downfall of man. Pride keeps us from the kingdom, guys. There was a movie that I saw about 8, 10 years ago. You guys might be familiar with it. It's called The Encounter. And it's a great movie. It's about this, um, this group of people, different cars, different situations. They get lost, per se, in this road. And there's a diner that they stop at. Now, in this diner, there's this man, this owner. Well, this owner is Jesus. Okay, and these guys, one by one, get to that place. Each one has issues. Of course, they lost their ways. And Jesus has a conversation with them and peels back their sin, one by one, one by one. There's a lot of good scenes there. He gives them water, and they're like, oh, wow, this is such good water, you know? Well, why? Because 
Jesus says, come to me all who thirst. And I'll, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> lost my frame of thought. Uh, anyways, he'll, he'll give us that water. You'll never thirst again. And he gives them the best meal that they've ever had. So he has this conversation with this guy, and these, these words really just got seared in my mind. As he's speaking to one of them, he says, Scratch any sin, and underneath it, you'll find pride. Scratch any sin, and underneath it, you'll find pride. Think about that. Everything we do, everything is, pride is behind it. So God hates pride. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you can turn back with me again, back to uh, chapter 5 and verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. So remember I said that this is progressive, that we see this transaction takes place. You recognize your need for God. You recognize your bankrupt state. And what does that make you do? It makes you mourn for your sin. See, your sin is what separates you from God. It makes you mourn and weep. So, blessed, oh, how happy are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, we read, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, guys, mourning truly for our sins. This just doesn't mean I'm sorry I got caught. It doesn't mean, hey, listen, I, I feel bad about this because of the circumstances or the result of it. It means, Lord, I'm sorry because I sinned against you. Now, that's quite, that was quite the revelation for me before I knew the Lord. When I realized that my sin is first and foremost against God, and then it's towards my fellow man, mourning over your sins. The psalmist, David, writes in Psalms 32, awesome psalms, the psalms of forgiveness, repentance. In verse 3, he writes, When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And check this out. This is when David was not acknowledging his sin to the Lord. But look at the transaction. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Mourning over our sins. Confession of our sins. No sooner do we confess our sin than God says, you're forgiven. Son, you're forgiven. The picture here is like, it's, it's leaving your mouth and God said, it is done. It is finished. Warning. And certainly, we we will be comforted. We Francois, you know, uh, we can certainly have that conversation afterwards. Uh, you know, we're, you know, absolutely. But I would love to talk to you. One of the elders, we would love to to speak with you afterwards and answer some of those questions. Um, but certainly on here, when we see here, there, there's a true repentance. And uh, But he, the latter portion of the verse says that we will be comforted. 
Now, in Psalms 30, 11, it says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. God takes those things. He takes that heaviness away. He forgives us. And all of a sudden, man, we have the joy of the Lord. He comforts us. The Bible says that he is the God of all comfort that comforts us in a time of need, of tribulation. Why does he do that? That we may comfort others in their times of need. He's the God of all comfort, and he comforts us. And certainly he provides comfort in this lifetime, here, now, when things happen. But the ultimate comfort, as the Bible says in Revelation 21, 34, it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Listen, God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's the ultimate comfort in heaven, in the presence of our Lord. Pretty awesome. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall... What is meekness? What is meekness? What, what is our, our, our idea of meekness, right? Some may say humble, sure, certainly. It, 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 I guess there's a form. But meekness, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not weakness. Now the word picture for meekness is an ox, a wild ox that has been domesticated. Now it's now under the authority or under control of someone. Right? They were under their own control, under their own power. Now they're being utilized for something. Now meekness is that. It's strength under control. But under whose control? Under a Heavenly Father's control. That is meekness. Now, it certainly, like I said, is not meekness. Because the next verse says, For they shall inherit the earth. If you're weak, how are you going to inherit the earth? It's not weakness. Now, So Moses, the meekest man on earth, the Bible tells us. Meekest man. He goes before the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh. Ten times he goes before him. And he doesn't cower down before Pharaoh. He is bold to speak God's word before him. Boldness, power under control, obedience. David, another example of meekness, right? God had promised him the kingdom. Samuel went to him and anointed him king. And now Saul is hunting him down. He had two opportunities to take out Saul and take his rightful place. But he said, he, he said, far be it from me to touch God's anointed meekness. Now the ultimate meekness, turn with me to John 2, if you will. John 2.13. Please turn with me if you, if you have your Bibles. And just follow with me. So we see the ultimate meekness here found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now in this, in this section here what we see is Jesus coming to the temple. In verse 13 it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' 
money and overturn the tables. And what did he say? He says, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Meekness, all power, all strength under control. Jesus Christ goes into the temple, our Lord, and what does he see? He sees the injustice. He sees that what are they doing extorting God's people? And he turns over all these tables. He makes a whip of cord. One man. Think about the busyness that was going on there. And he turns over money changers table. All this money goes down. If you were that person that had that money there, how would you feel? You'd be pretty angry, right? That's strength. Now our Lord is not weak. Sometimes they're painting him as a certain a certain way. Now our Lord was a man's man. Our Lord was a man's man. And this was righteous anger. Now, he wasn't angry for himself. In fact, the Bible says that when he was reviled, he was reviled. He didn't revile in return. He was angry because of what was going on, how they were abusing their authority, how they were um, extorting God's people. Meekness, he gives us a picture of that. Now, It says the meekness, the meek will inherit the earth. In Revelation 5, if we do just a quick um, just view of it, just a quick summary. In Revelation 5, what do we see? We see that God has a scroll on his right hand. Now, what is this scroll? It's titled Deed of Earth. Okay. Adam forfeited the deed. He turned it over to Satan. Jesus redeemed it at the cross. And now in this portion, we see that he's going to take possession of it. So we go through chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we see the seals, we see the trumpets, we see the bold judgment. In chapter 19 of Revelation, what do we see? We see our Lord and Savior coming back with the church, and he's taking possession of the earth. And once again, he cleans house. He takes care of business. He restores things. And now he sets up the millennial kingdom where we'll rule and reign in that millennial kingdom. Now, are you going to rule and reign if you're weak? Weakness, meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. And those that are under God's control, God's sovereignty, under his authority, those are the ones he's going to put in charge because it's not our will, it's thy will be done, Lord. Meekness certainly is not weakness. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Before I came to know the Lord, I hunger and thirst for what would make me happy. What do you hunger and thirst for? What do you hunger and thirst for? Are you hungering and thirsting for the things of the world? Are you hungering and thirsting for the next big thing? You know, um, about, I don't know, a couple months ago or so, there was this big lottery pot, right? You guys remember that? One point something billion or something like that? Huge amount. I mean, that's B with billion. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Right? And you think, wow, that would be great if I had that. 
if I only won that or a percentage of that, I would do this, I would do that. I'm like, oh, I want that. The interesting thing, the interesting thing is that um, when you do a survey, you do a study of all these people that have won the lottery, you see misery. You see people that are miserable, that they, they're like, they won this money, all of a sudden their life just goes to shamble. Hungering and thirsting for the things of the world is temporary at best, but when we hunger and thirst for God, that's eternal. Now, the word here, hunger, it's not like, hey, I missed a couple of meals, um, you know, Maybe you've fasted before and, and, and you've gone through that day and you're like, wow, I'm hungry. You know, it's uh, your body is just saying, feed me. What's well, not even that? It's not even that. We went over at the very beginning of chapter four with Jesus. He was in the desert 40 days and 40 nights and it says he was hungry. That's the hunger that we're talking about here. It's a hunger, a desperation. It's such a desire. It's to the point of survival. Now, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word righteousness, we can switch over and we can say for holiness. We want God's holiness. We want those things that are right. We, got, we want God's will to be done on this earth. You know, we live in a society right now that they called evil good. And good evil. And people want their own way. Things that God clearly calls sin, they celebrate. And, and, and if you're like me, we say, Lord, when are you going to correct this? Lord, we need your righteousness. We want you to set things right. We need your holiness. Well, one day he will set his kingdom on earth. And there will be righteousness, there will be holiness, and we will be filled, as he says. That's our desire as Christians. So as Christians, we have this desire to walk with God. We have desire, this need for him. We have this, this uh, understanding of our sins. We mourn for our sins. It causes us to be meek in our character. And it causes us to just hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness for him. Now, I'm not going to go into the rest of the verses. I think I'm just going to, okay, good, good time. I'm just going to leave it there. I got my wife giving me the thumbs up. Um, you can thank her later. <laughs> um, we just skipped down a little bit further down. Um, where it says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, when you're persecuted, when this change takes place, you're born again, you're a spiritual man. Here you are. Now there's a newness of life and the world sees that. The result of that is that they shun you. There's persecution. And we see that more apparent in other places of the world where, where brothers are being killed. You know, in the Muslim religion, especially over in the Middle East, and even here, 
if they give their lives to the Lord, if they turn, they call it a mercy killing. A mercy killing. They kill them for turning to the Lord. That's true persecution. So we see that, that when we turn to the Lord, we will suffer these things. Now, the promise is that blessed, oh, how happy are we? Why? Because, once again, that happiness is eternal happiness. It transcends this life, and one day we'll be in the presence of our Lord. That's his promise to us. So, I go back, and I ask you, what is, what's in your heart? What's, what's in your heart? Are you this person that we're describing here? Is that a transaction that has taken place in your life? Do you understand your need for God? Because if you don't, then maybe, maybe, listen, maybe, maybe you don't know the Lord. Because when you have an encounter with the Lord, you will never be the same. That's just the bottom line. You will never be the same. When you have an encounter with the Lord, and regardless of whether you accept them or not, you will never be the same because you've heard the truth. It is said that God examines us through trials. Satan examines us through temptation. The world examines us through persecution. That's the life of a Christian. That's the life of a Christian. I'm going to close out with this, Luke 9. This is when I gave my life to the Lord is when I heard these words. It says, For whosoever is ashamed of me, my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes into his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. For whoever is ashamed of me. Look, I don't know. I'm new here. The good thing is that there's other people that are new in this building only the second day, right? But I, I don't know if you're new here. And I don't know if you know the Lord. It's never early. It's never late. God reaches out to you to the, to the very end of your life. Like, I pray that I'm preaching to the choir. I pray that we're all brothers and sisters. I truly pray that. But in the off chance that you don't know the Lord, hey, today you can receive the Lord. You can, you can repent of your sins. You can turn your one turn away and say, Lord, I receive that free gift of eternal life. I receive your forgiveness. I no longer want to live my life the way I've been living it. I've made a mess of things, and I hand it over to you. You will never regret it. Amen? Before we pray, if that's you, while we're praying, you are welcome to come on up, and I'm sure that one of the leaders here will come up and pray with you. Okay, if that is you, I ask you to come up. And you know why I ask you to come up? Because Jesus always called people out in public to proclaim them. Hey, this is church, man. If you can't come up in church, right? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that, that Lord, you saved us, that you love us. Lord, we thank you for the work you've done, you're doing, and you're yet to do in our lives. Lord, I, I want to pray for Francois who walked on out. Lord, he's having some difficult times in his life. Lord, I pray that you would just, um, Lord, just, just speak to him, that you would clear his mind, that he would hear your calling. Lord, that he would repent and turn to you. 
So, Lord, I, I, I pray for him, but I pray for all those here. Maybe there's someone here that doesn't know you, Lord. I pray that you would tug on his heart, Lord, that he would not, Lord, or she, that person that would not reject you. Because that's what it is. Not answering your call is rejection. I pray that um, they would just receive you. Receive the incredible gift of salvation of an eternity with you. Lord, and I thank you for this time here. I want to pray for Pastor John. I want to pray for his brother, Lord. I don't know the full situation, but you do. Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for comfort. And I pray for the peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.